There is a musical that turned into a movie called Les Miserables. Uh, my southern white friends might call it Les Miserables. Uh, but it's actually Les Miserables or Les Mis. Uh, and it centers around two men who are at odds with each other during the French Revolution in the 1780s. Uh, the first is a guy named Jean Valjean. Or Jean Valjean? Yeah. I want to say as many French words as I can today. So we, there's one. Okay. Jean Valjean is a prisoner in a work camp. He's been there for 19 years, five years of which he's serving because he stole bread for his sister's family who was in need. The rest of the 14 years he's there for attempting to escape. And after 19 years, Valjean gets his parole. It's granted to him by an inspector named Javert. And Javert hates Valjean. He is the kind of people that they don't believe that people can change. He sees Valjean as this everyday common convict, thief, nothing more to him. And it's his pursuit of him, Valjean, that the movie centers around. And I'm not going to share the plot. Honestly, you didn't come here to hear the plot of Les Mis. But at the end of the movie, we see Inspector Javert captured by the revolutionaries uh, amongst the French. He's captured as a spy. And in the ending of the movie, he comes face to face with his long sought after enemy, Jean Valjean. He is probably going to be executed. And Valjean does something that blows Javert away. Valjean shows mercy. And he gives Javert his life back. In this act of deep love and mercy, Valjean doesn't act like an enemy. He acts like a friend. And it defies logic. Logic that comes from our natural persuasions in our life. That hate should be met with hate. That harm should be met with harm. That opposition should find opposition. The, the innermost desire of our hearts is fairness in life. And when one person treats us unfairly, what we want more than most or anything, is that they would receive the same kind of harm that we have, if not more. But as he does with everything, Jesus just messes this up. He messes us up. His wisdom and his life are an ice-cold shower to our natural inclinations. And today we will read words from Jesus that radically redefine our relationships with our enemies. A relationship that doesn't center around us, but rather around the God that is in us. And so today we want to find wisdom from Jesus in his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll, we'll look at it in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, starting in verse 43 through 48. You're feel free to grab a Bible and turn there or use your, even your phone, but we'll have it on the screen. We want to put our eyes on Scripture together. It's important that we look at God's Word together. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus compels this idea that the audience would be very much familiar with. And we know that because we hear him say, you have heard it said before. Jesus kind of lays out this prominent teaching that was established in Jewish culture, a a law that governed interpersonal relationships. But the way that he said it, Jesus, is not found in Scripture, but comes from human deduction and human wisdom. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy is not a phraseology that you would find anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere in the Old Testament, the principle of loving your neighbor is found in the Old Testament book, Leviticus, of Leviticus in chapter 19. Human deduction has established the second clause of loving your enemy. The phrase loving your enemy and hating your neighbor was obviously, though, something that teachers were going around instructing in that day because Jesus is here speaking against it. And here again we find the wisdom of man interfering with the very heart of God. It seems, and this is speculation, but there are scholars that believe this, that at some point that, that humans deducted that if, if somebody wasn't your neighbor, then they were your enemy. And if an enemy of God, then they are to be hated. And what they probably did would be to take some of the Psalms that David wrote in his anger and compel them as lost. Psalm 139, for instance, says, Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. And in our human wisdom, we infer that that meant for us to hate those who weren't for us. But clearly, this isn't God's heart. It's not God's heart. God's wisdom about loving our neighbor has never changed. It didn't change just because Jesus came on the scene. It has always been his will that his people would love his neighbors. David's psalms are poetic in genre and express his anger and are prophetic with colorful language about the final judgment of God in the future. They are here for our purposes, but not to establish laws, not to make laws that say we are to hate our enemies. And what I want us to do is hold on to this for our discussion is that there is a reality in which human beings insert our wisdom over God's wisdom to get out of life what we want. There is a way that we corrupt it, God's wisdom, to fit our own agendas and our own needs. And I want to come back to that discussion. I want to hold on to that. But first I want to talk about what these verses imply for us. There are implications here. And the most obvious one is that there is a reality in which we will have enemies. There is not a language here that speculates that you might 
It's the assurance that you will. Now, we would think rightly if we are, as Christians, people who are marked by love for neighbor and enemy, enemy, that logically we wouldn't have an enemy. Who would hate somebody who loves you? But Jesus, multiple times in Scripture, has compelled the fact that the world hated him. And you should expect that if the world hated him, that they will hate you as well. Because as followers of Jesus, we love and hold fast to concepts and ideas that are opposed in this world. They are ideas and concepts that the world doesn't think are right or good or normal. And listen, as we in this culture hold on to biblical truth, we will find an increase in oppression, in opposition. And honestly, we're kind of there. We're kind of at that point. It doesn't mean that we're looking for enemies, nor are we trying to create enemies where enemies don't exist. It just is our reality. That when we live in this world, that there's going to be a tension here. And there's a personal tension in our own lives that we have to account for. In our own personal walks, we have to account for what we love. Do we love the world or do we love God? We want to believe that we can have both. Many people believe that they can have both, but Jesus says that it's impossible. You cannot love two masters. And if we're pursuing likability in this world, we should be very concerned. Because Jesus has very strong words in this same Sermon on the Mount. In Luke 6, we see Jesus say these words, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets, false prophets who gave them what they wanted. And so listen, if we as Christians find ourselves in a position where we don't have people opposed to us, we don't have enemies, it may just mean that we're not following Jesus as closely as we think we are. And when we say enemies, we're not talking about overt people who are externally opposed to us, but we're also talking about people who inwardly we are opposed to. The term enemy encapsulates them. And how we treat those who are opposed to us is very important to Jesus. Jesus reminds us of the perfection of our Father, who raises his Son on both the good and the evil, who brings rain on the just and the unjust. In God's grace, he displays his compassion and his care and his generosity and blessing both to those who are for him and to those who are against him. We all get to share in the common graces of our God. You don't have to be a Christian to experience rain or laugh or love, to enjoy a good meal. All of humanity, by God's grace, gets to enjoy his abundance, both in supplication and in his character. And this is what Jesus commands towards us. This idea that we should look out for the welfare of both those who love us and those who are opposed to us. 
And this love that is spoken towards neighbor and it's spoken towards enemy is the type of love that the Greeks define as agape. And we've defined this term agape here. It's a, a sacrificial, spontaneous love that, that seeks welfare and justice by compassion of individuals. It is an active love that is found in the will of us, not so much contained in our emotions. The word storgi is the Greek word for an emotional love that is affectionate, the same kind of love that you would have for your children or for your parents or for your spouse. There's an important differentiation, uh, there's an important distinction there. To our enemies, we show welfare and love. This, it, it has to, at some level, commo- uh, connect emotionally, but it's about blessing them, giving to them materially. We treat them with kindness, go out of our way to serve them, and bless them with whatever material things that we have, even if they have never given to us in the same manner, precisely for those who have withheld from us those things. And Jesus says that if we do this, then we will be known as sons of God. You will have a distinctive mark of the Father. You are behaving like God behaves, who is perfect and shows his love perfectly. And look, those are noble and motivating thoughts. But as Jesus points out, this is hard for us to walk in. It's hard for us to live out this idea. He he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Jesus is speaking to the most obvious situation in our hearts that it's easier for us to love those who love us. It's easier for us to show compassion and mercy on those who bring life to us, who give us joy and purpose, and we tend to avoid those who take, who are pessimistic, who are needy, those who we deem hard to love. But what we know in Christ is that he never categorized people in that way. He was always available as much to the widow as he was to the high priest, to the sinner as he was to the saint. Christ exemplifies his wisdom, not in just words alone, or the examples that we read in Scripture, but in our own very unique experience in life. Because by the standard and the magnitude of our holy God, which one of us, is worthy of God's love? Which one of us is a worthy candidate to experience his grace and his mercy? We have found ourselves most often in the position where we bring nothing worthy to God except for grief and frustration. Yet even in our rejection of God, God's love still finds us. We are reminded in Scripture that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. While I was unlovable by the world's standards, Christ died for me. Jesus' teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount aren't just words. They are the radical purpose of a glorious Savior who loved us most when we needed it. Jesus never did the easy things. 
And it would only make sense that those who follow him wouldn't either. And this is the perfection of God, that we must find ourselves pursuing. I think, when I think of this term perfection, and I think of a holy, glorious, righteous God, it would mean to me, in my wisdom, giving the unrighteous what they deserve. No rain, no sun. That the just thing would be to love those who love us and hate those who hate us. This, the kind of perfection that we see in Jesus comes from his father is different. And the kind that he calls us to pursue as disciples is different. It doesn't compel wisdom that senses a completion of delivering retribution for wrongdoings. Rather, it is the perfection of a heart that finds so much fulfillment and satisfaction in the God of grace that it's able to extend grace to those who don't deserve it. That is what it means to be perfect. To know your true purpose in life is to be like Jesus and nothing less, never surrendering to anything lesser than that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we attain that perfection, but because Jesus has dealt with our sin and our disobedience and our shortcomings, we have all the grace that we need to strive towards it. That we try and fail and try and fail, but we move towards it, never giving up, never surrendering to anything lesser than him. But what proves hard for us sinners is to hear words like these that are so contrasting to our human condition, so contrasting to what we naturally want to do, and then to live these words out. What most of us kind of want is this happy medium where we get to please God and still have some preferences for ourselves. We, we want to have a loophole in this that gives us some flexibility. And what I think is important for us to reflect upon today is the desire that God has for your flourishing and for humanity's flourishing. You see, when God created the garden in the beginning, he designed it so that humanity would flourish and it was broken by our own stupidity. And then God again works to create flourishing environments for us, his broken creation and the broken world. He brings a people unto himself. He gives them an identity. He creates boundaries for them to live in, healthy practices to walk by. God's hope is that we would flourish in his design by his wisdom, each in our own time for his glory and for our joy. But what happens repeatedly, just like it did with the ancient Israelite, is that we find ourselves trusting our wisdom more than we trust God's wisdom. And we begin to add or take away things from God's command so that we might find them more suitable to ourselves. And for the ancient Israelite, it was to create systems in which they could appear to be more righteous than they really were. But make no mistake, we do the same thing today in a very different way. When we read these words, what we naturally want to assume is that Jesus isn't talking about my enemy. Like he's not talking about my guy, because if he knew my enemy, there's no way he would say this. 
We would expect that if I told Jesus about all the things that this person has done to me, he would go, you know what? I didn't think about that. Uh, I don't like him either. Uh, you know what? I, I'll make him bold. There. No. That, that's not, there is no loophole. There's not a, a loophole here. Jesus speaks these truths as much to me as he does to you. He speaks this to every one of us because this isn't about your blind obedience. It's about your flourishing. It's about you walking in God's wisdom. And this is the other thing that we like to do with these ideas of loving our enemies. We weaponize it. We weaponize love. When people wrong us, and sometimes out of our desire to kind of look good or consider God, we try this phrase, oh, we're going to love them to death. We're going to kill them with kindness. And we create this holy indignation where we see ourselves better than them and can't believe that possibly anybody would do something so crazy. And we part ways by, by saying to them, well, Jesus loves you, and I'm going to pray for your soul. Look, I understand the intent. And there is some scripture that loosely could maybe get around to that. But the motivation is all wrong. The motivation is out of creating guilt and shame and others, so you can get what you want, so that you can harm them with your words. And so let's just be honest about this. This is actually very hard for us to live out. There is so much tension in this idea of loving our enemy because it goes against our natural intuition that it would be a mistake for us to try to create a system of do's and don'ts that is applicable to every situation with the relationships in your life. There's just not a way to define it and do this, do this, do this. But instead, the better idea would be to wrestle, as Scripture tells us to wrestle, and meditate on God's wisdom around the ideas of generosity and love and grace and welfare amidst real adversity, amidst real pain and hardship, against real opposition. It is to ask the question of ourselves. Jesus, what at my expense of what seems right here, could I glorify your name? Or, or to ask it this way, how could I show them the same grace and love that you have shown me in my opposition to you? And the reason we do this is not because Jesus is trying to create blind, obedient robots. It's that he desires you to flourish in your life, in your relationships, for his glory and for your joy. The principle of loving our enemy is deemed to be flourishing to God. And really, is that hard to argue with if you think about it? At the end of the day, who do you hurt more by hating your enemies? You or the one that you hate? you do. You think that somehow your opposition internally is hurting someone, but the reality is, is, is you're only hurting yourself. You've actually allowed your enemies to become your warden. And you've been placed in a jail of a life filled with unforgiveness and hate and bitterness in your life that does more harm to you than it does to them. 
No, God has seen all that foolishness. And he says, love them. Let it go. Free them and free yourself. And so as we kind of close our time out here today, I want to impart to you four truthful foundations that compel this kind of lifestyle. If we would hold these to be true in our lives, we would find loving our enemies easier to come by. So how are you going to be a person like this? How are you going to be a person that loves your enemies? Well, let's look at this first foundation. Number one is this. You have to understand, I, you, were an enemy at one time. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we have are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God saved you while you were his enemy. You didn't befriend him before he moved on to you to save you. And so the root origin on how we love our enemies is to experience being loved as an enemy of God. There's a death row chaplain. His name is Russ Ford. He, he says this, that Jesus didn't teach us to love our enemies for their good. It was for our own good to keep from becoming the enemy. The second foundation is this. Vengeance is not mine. Can I, look, vengeance is not, it's not yours. Paul writes in Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is risen, written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the reasons that we find it so hard to love our neighbors is that we feel like they're getting away with murder. How can we let them get away with this? Listen, nobody gets away with murder or anything else. Vengeance is in the hands of God. God says, I will repay you. Feed them. Give them water. Hand over your thoughts of revenge and vengeance to the Lord. God will be the one that does the justice, and it will be done. All sins will be punished. They will either be punished on the cross for those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and you can't improve on that punishment, or in hell for those who don't repent, and you can't improve on that punishment either. You are not the judge and jury of this world. We are to hope and trust in the wisdom and the love and the mercy of God, even if it costs us our pride and dignity by the world's standards. And the third truth is this, is my sufficiency and security are in Christ. My sufficiency and security are in Christ. Ephesians says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it 
to the praise of his glory. Look, you belong to God. You're his son. You're his daughter. He is not going to forsake you or forget you or abandon you. And though you may walk in times of public humiliation, but the world may make you weak to their standards, you have all that you need already in Christ. He's all that you need. And the fourth foundation is this is my reward will outweigh my struggles. My reward will outweigh my struggles. In the book of Galatians, it says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Jesus said, blessed are, the men when, blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all sorts of evil things on my account. Rejoice in that day and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. There is a reward in heaven that is spectacularly beyond whatever we could lose on this earth. Way better than we could find here in loving our enemies. And let's show the world how free we are from vengeance, free we are from loving the world, free we are from needing security, and how much we love, how much love we have for those who persecute us. You know, at the end of Les Mis, Inspector Javert cannot reconcile an enemy who loved him so differently than the world compels. He cannot account for this undue mercy and love that spared him his life. And he's so convicted and conflicted that he takes his own life. He cannot continue to live in a world where his once sworn enemy did not respond to him as an enemy, but as a friend. And the truth is, is is the world still can't get over this kind of love. The world does not know what to do with this type of love that doesn't seek revenge, but cultivates reconciliation and redemption. And this is precisely why God compels us to live this way. We often mistake thinking that to evangelize is to have special words and special relationships. But what proves to be the most proficient and effective evangelistic tool in the world is when Christians actually live like Christians. And if we are to become the type of people that love our enemies, that pray for those who persecute us with regularity in our lives, we will find a harvest in this world that is greater, bigger than what we could ever do by our own words. So will you? Will you lay down what seems right to you? to flourish by our king's wisdom. Will you let go of what you want to find what you need in Christ? You know, over the next two weeks, we are going to walk into a couple steps that I think will be helpful for us in this process. Because I know this is a big deal for lots of us in here. People have harmed us. They've hurt us. And it's not easy to let that go. And so over the next couple of weeks, we want to talk about how forgiveness 
finds those who forgive. And how in God's kingdom, giving actually means receiving. These are important concepts as we try to live a radical life that's defined not by our own wisdom, but by the flourishing knowledge of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, this is the hardest thing we can do is to lay down what seems right to us, to overlook offenses and harms that have occurred to us in our lives, to release bitterness and hate in the direction of those who have made our lives difficult, miserable. Lord, I just pray today that your spirit would break into our hearts and help us to see with fresh eyes your beautiful wisdom that wants nothing more to see us flourish for your glory and for our joy. And so, Lord, give us the wisdom to take steps to give to you what we shouldn't be holding, that we would free others from our hate and find freedom in you, in your cross, in your love. So help us to be different than we want to be, Lord. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.